Welcome to Something Wicked, where each week we will be discussing topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. This episode, we're going to talk about the Bath School Massacre. So, taxes are a bitch. Pretty much no one likes them unless you're part of the upper elite who's too rich to give a shit. But would you ever kill over them? Like, straight up murder a bunch of people because you're butthurt about going broke. If you're like any sane person out there, myself included, I say that lightly, of course, I'm guessing no. Unfortunately, there are people that will go that distance, and this is what this episode is about. Back in 1927, the worst school tragedy in history occurred in Bath, Michigan, resulting in the deaths of 45 people and dozens of major injuries. Now known as the Bath School Massacre, we're going to delve into the mind of the man behind it. Andrew Kehoe, who is now known to all as the Mad Butcher of Bath. Andrew Kehoe was born on February 1st, 1827 in Tecumseh, Michigan. He was the firstborn boy after six girls, also the middle child of 13 children total. His parents had come from western New York to start a farm in the Bath Township. Andrew was a very privileged little boy, and by privileged, I mean he was a snooty little shit. Because he was the firstborn boy, he was made to believe that he was the rightful heir to the family farm, which in my opinion is nothing to be all hoity-toity about, but he always had a superiority complex and would get pissy with anyone that didn't agree with him. Like, calm your tits, King Jethro put the scepter down, and go spread the cow shit in the fields. Simple as that. Needless to say, he didn't get along with anyone. At age five, his mother died and his father remarried, and shocker, he hated her. There was no real reports of abuse or neglect that him or his siblings went through at all. He was just a mean little kid. He tinkered a lot, making inventions to help with work on the farm growing up. When they didn't work, he would seclude himself in the barn again and try to fix whatever he needed to. But if they did, he expected high praise and adornment for having his brilliant inventions improve production in the fields. So he was already very innovative from a young age. At age 14, there was an accident his stepmother was cooking on the kitchen stove and it exploded. She didn't die then, but had caught on fire. Meanwhile, Andrew decides that instead of helping, he was going to sit back and watch her burn for several minutes before pouring water on her to put her out. Like, he was just chilling by her, sipping water while she flailed around screaming and then was like, oh shit, maybe I should do something. She was brought to the hospital, but later died from the burns. He was never suspected of causing this initially, of course. It wasn't until the tragedy much later that people were starting to think that maybe he had something to do with it. Well, no shit, people. (laughs) 
nothing major happened for years after that. Andrew had really never committed any crimes or ever got in trouble. The only suspicious thing he did was he was like really bad to animals. He had an affinity for hurting them um, and even killed one of his stepsister's cats, which in today's standards, that's a red flag for serial killer. But back in the early 1900s, not so much. You'd think he'd at least get in some kind of trouble, but his dad was just like, meh, he's just a weird kid, whatever. After high school in 1911, he became a student at Michigan State Agricultural University, where he was the top student in physics and majored in the electrician field. This is where he met Nellie Price, who came from a prominent family in Lansing, Michigan, and started a relationship with her. He also had, at this time, had a major fall, which resulted in a head injury that left him drifting in and out of coma for two months. In 1912, he graduated and married Nellie and would proceed to move around with her, living in different places while working as an electrician. The only recorded job he had was for a park in Iowa, hanging power lines that I know of, but there's really not much else on that. In 1919, the couple stopped moving around and ended up buying this 185-acre farm in the Bath Township. They purchased it from Nellie's aunt for 12 grand, which they paid her six and then put the other six down on a mortgage. Andrew continued to make his inventions to help with the fields. He even at one time had one where he put like a bunch of mowers on top of a tractor, which... I'm having a tough time picturing this in my head or what it could have been used for. Maybe to save time on cutting grass, like he was trying to make the world's first riding motor mower or something. I, I don't know. One other weird thing about him, mind you, that his neighbors frequently commented on was that he never dressed the part. He was a farmer, but he never wore things like overalls, jeans, anything like that. No, he dressed it always in his Sunday best. Like, people would say that he looked like a banker, suit and tie and everything. His pictures actually remind me of, uh, like, a little bit of Mr. Banks from Mary Poppins. Very highbrow, business-looking, and he hated being dirty. But, I'm sorry, you grew up on a farm, you own a farm, you'd think part of the aesthetic would stick, and the fact that you hate getting dirty, why Why do you own a farm? Personally, I, I think he dressed like that because, again, he felt superior to everyone, and he still had the same attitude from when he was a kid. People would say that he was still very impatient with those that didn't agree with him. He also continued the animal abuse, which is just great. He would abuse the animals he owned at the farm and once beat a horse to death because he said it had a bad attitude and, quote, wouldn't pull. How about don't be a dick to it and maybe it'll listen to you? Just maybe? <laughs> He told one of his neighbors after, quote, when I got through with it, the animal was dead. He also shot and killed a neighbor's dog for being a nuisance. So 
this guy was just a straight up asshole. <laughs> By the early 1920s, he fell into major financial issues, but of course, so did the rest of the farmers at the time because the price of crops had plummeted. In 1922, he had campaigned to be both the town's justice of the peace and the town clerk, but lost. My guess is he had hoped that by gaining those offices, he would be able to stop the strain on his finances, and he took even more loss when his wife started getting sick. She would get headaches, go into coughing fits, lose a ton of weight. So she thought she had tuberculosis, which in that time was kind of running rampant and with those symptoms made sense. There was no official diagnosis that I know of, but their medical bills were astronomical and would continuously stack up. So he was none too happy at this point. This was also around the time that one classroom schools were starting to get weeded out because teachers thought that children would learn better if they were all in one location. So one building for students of all ages, not all separated anymore. So the town got together and decided that they were going to build one big school. This was the last straw that broke the camel's back for Andrew. He was not having the school being built and was constantly trying to lobby against it, mostly due to the taxes that were going into both building and maintaining the school. He, of course, was the only one in the whole county that had an issue with it because he didn't have any kids, so why should he pay for someone else's to get an education? He legit told one of his neighbors, Monty Ellsworth, at one point, quote, I'll be taxed into the poorhouse. So he's deciding to throw a fit like a five-year-old because he's more special than the other townsfolk because he doesn't have kids and, oh, woe is me, I'm going broke. Again, not the only one, dude. Everyone else is hitting bottom two at this point. The town, of course, ignored him and built it anyway, so he decided to, in turn, run for the board so he could limit funding and expenditure to the school. This just goes to show that funding for education has always been shit. I used to be a teacher, so I do understand the frustration among staff. Really, I do. Anyway, he got accepted and, in 1924, became the school's treasurer. The superintendent at this time, Emery Hewick, wanted to go all out for it. He got the school federally accredited and was always pushing for improvement of status and to expand offerings for the school. This, in turn, raised taxes for Andrew to a whopping annual fee of $150 or $2,300 today. So, with Emery raising taxes against Andrew, who was constantly opposing them and trying to cut funding, it was no secret that they pretty much hated each other. Emery would, on top of that, conveniently forget to give Andrew his paycheck on most weeks, so he was barely getting paid and taxed to hell, according to him. Fun little tidbit of info, by the way, I know this sounds completely freaking random, but I promise you it ties into the story. This is recently post-World War I era, so during this time, the surplus of explosives that were produced for the war were now being sold and distributed to citizens. 
things like dynamite and pyrodol. These two types were used on farms for excavating, so deep tilling and getting rid of tree stumps and things. Andrew would regularly purchase them to help out neighboring farms and to use them on his own. Not thinking this is anything but normal practice, of course. Not taking into mind at all that he loved tinkering and hated the town with a passion, especially now. It didn't really phase anyone. Which I honestly think is weird. But, you know, that's fine. Um, also, using dynamite to excavate um, on farms? I'm, I'm sure it's a thing, but barring from sounding dumb, I, I'd never heard of it before, personally. I want to look more into this. I think it's curious, but, you know, that's, that's just me. <laughs> In 1926, Emery had asked Andrew to do some maintenance on the school, and being the unofficial handyman of the county, which he did stuff like that, again, helping neighboring farms and fix their houses and whatnot, he accepted. Andrew now had two excuses to get into the school whenever he needed to. At this time, he had also been served a notice of foreclosure on his farm for being behind a couple years on the mortgage, which I don't know how it worked back then, but now you'd have already been kicked the fuck out of your house after a few years. His response, of course, to the process server was, quote, if it hadn't been for that school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. So, dude had a real big hard-on for getting revenge at this point. Between the end of 1926 and the early summer of 1927, he kept himself more on the hush-hush and went about his normal life. Then he got suspicious, like some people noticed things he said to be really odd and were wondering why he had this sudden mood change. One of the first grade teachers, Bernice Sterling, asked Andrew if she could take her students on a picnic to his farm on May 18th, which was supposed to be the last day of school for them and ended up being the date of the incident. He told her that she should instead have the picnic right away and not to wait for that date. His neighbor, Monty, was later asked by a newspaper after the incident why he thought Andrew would suggest the date change to which his response was, quote, I suppose he wanted the children to have a little fun before he killed them. That's a really chilling response. Like, I have legit goosebumps right now. That's terrible. I, first and foremost, you don't ever want to think about children being murdered. But when you think about um, Monty saying something like that, you know, it really makes you try to pick apart how Andrew was as a person. Like, was he really that vicious like did he have that much hatred towards the kids just because he was poor like did he hate kids in general or was this just he was pissed off at the town I don't know either way it's it's terrible to hear a statement like that 
Andrew had also told a bus driver, Warden Keys, that, quote, my boy, you want to take good care of that check as it is probably the last check you will ever get. So he, this was premeditated. He knew what he was doing. He had been planning this. There's no way he, this would have held up in courts if, you know, things hadn't turned out the way they did. Anyway, getting to that. On May 17th, 1927, Andrew put his plan into fruition. He got together old tools, nails, pieces of rusted farm machinery, digging shovels, and other types of shrapnel and loaded them into the back seat and truck bed of his vehicle. He purchased over a ton of pyrotol and dynamite to make bombs, which he set some of that dynamite in his back seat then drove down to the school and entered the basement. There, he wrapped his homemade bombs in wire mesh and plastered them to the basement ceiling. He connected the wires together to a hotshot battery, which was, it's basically this elongated battery thing, which there, where he lived, was used mostly for powering cattle prods. Um, And then he took all that and set it to a timer device to go off the next morning. to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! After that, he went home and had set the bombs in the house and the barn while Nellie was sleeping as well. On the morning of May 18th, he killed Nellie with some type of blunt object and left her to bleed out on the kitchen floor. He then went to the barn, bound all the horses by the ankles so they couldn't escape, and set everything ablaze. He left in time to a safe distance before the bombs caught and set off the explosion. At 8.45, they went off. The barn and the house were consumed, burning the body of Nellie and the horses, which that's terrible, burning your animals alive. The explosion was so loud and so big that the town thought there had been an earthquake, Pieces of debris even flew far enough to rain down on neighboring farms. Like, nobody got hurt, but mind you, again, this was a 185-acre farm, so you can imagine how huge this blast was. I'm not surprised that people 
instantly thought earthquake. Like it was felt everywhere. One of the teachers at the school after even commented that she thought it was an earthquake again with everybody else in town. So huge explosion. A couple of neighbors quickly came over to help, but Andrew was already in the process of leaving. He passed them on the road in his truck and told them, quote, boys, you're my friends. You better get out of here and head down to the school, which they thought was really weird of him to say, like, why would you leave your farm on fire to randomly go down to the school? But, you know, so Andrew then went back to the school just after the first lessons of the day had started and went down to the basement for a final check. Then, as some reported, fled rather quickly from the area in his truck. Then a couple minutes later, at 9.45, the bombs went off. Almost a ton of explosives had been set. So almost 2,000 pounds of explosives had been set, and it leveled the south wing of the school. Some of the devices, however, malfunctioned, and 500 pounds of it remained undetonated. The town almost immediately responded in a frenzy to put out the fires and to save the children. There were bodies everywhere. Most of them had been pinned under the roofing and couldn't get free. One of the teachers that survived actually recalled being stuck in between a wall in a blackboard with one of the little boys who she tried to get to wake up because she thought he was just passed out, but after 20 minutes realized that he was dead. So now this woman was trapped in this tiny space with a dead boy, like right in front of her through all of this. Hundreds of people were unburying bodies and pulling survivors out. And one of the locals, Robert Gates, commented on the scene saying, quote, mother after mother came running into the schoolyard and demanded information about her child and, on seeing the lifeless form on the lawn, broke into sobs. In no time, more than 100 men and nearly as many women were frantically pawing over the timber and broken bricks for traces of their children. That's terrifying to think about. Like, if you can just, like, Imagine that, this bomb going off at your child's school, and all you can do is desperately try to dig them out and hope and pray they're okay. Monty, um, Andrew's neighbor, had said later, quote, there was a pile of children of about five or six under the roof, and some of them had arms sticking out, some had legs, and some just their heads sticking out. They were unrecognizable because they were covered with dust, plaster, and blood. There were not enough of us to move the roof. Monty then left to his farm less than a half hour after the explosion to get a heavy rope and to pull the roof off of them. On his way to the farm, he saw Andrew driving back to the school, and he said, quote, he grinned and waved his hand. When he grinned, I could see both rows of his teeth. So, this evil asshole was just, like, completely 100% giddy that he just obliterated a school and killed all these innocent children. Like, I hope he's in hell. 
Andrew then pulled up to the school and called Emery over to him. He told Emery that he had done it and proceeded to grab a Winchester rifle out of the front seat of his truck. The two men got into a fight over the gun and it went off. Andrew had shot dynamite, causing his truck to explode with all the shrapnel in it. This ended up killing Andrew himself. Emery, the local postmaster, Glenn Smith, Glenn's father, uh, Nelson McFerrin, and eight-year-old Cleo Clayton, who survived the initial blast and now died due to the secondary one. The shrapnel also injured dozens of others, including 10-year-old Beatrice Gibbs, who had three months later died after a hip surgery and was considered the last and 45th victim. This, in turn, would make Andrew Kehoe go down in history as the infamous Mad Butcher of Bath. Monty, who returned after this, went to help with Rope and newly injured. He commented on the aftermath later and said, I saw one mother, Mrs. Eugene Hart, sitting on the bank a short distance from the crowd with a little dead girl on each side of her and holding a little boy, Percy, who had died short time after they got him into the hospital. This was about the time Kehoe blew his car up in the street, severely wounding Perry, the oldest child of Mr. and Mrs. Hart. The policemen and the fire crew that showed up initially said that they were witnessing what looked like a world war zone. People were getting faint from all the carnage. Some were volunteering to use their cars as ambulances to either get the injured to hospitals or the dead to undertakers. Overall, there were a total of at least 13 ambulances active in the school area that day. And mind you, again, all these ambulances were not real ones. They were like, people from the town doing this for the victims and the survivors and whatnot just to help out. The foreman of the local road crew, O.H. Buck, who had volunteered, also commented on the aftermath before and after the truck explosion. He said, I began to feel as though the world was coming to an end. I guess I was a bit hazy. Anyway, the next thing I remember, I was out on the street one of our men was binding up the wounds of Glenn Smith, the postmaster. His leg had been blown off. I went back to the building and helped with the rescue work until we were ordered to stop and search was made for dynamite. So, yes, Glenn Glenn died from the secondary one, so not the initial one. The police had road crew and themselves go into what was left of the school and discovered over 500 pounds that had not detonated, as I stated before, and were able to disarm the bombs, thankfully. They had commented that if it had, not only had the entire school would have gone up, but possibly most of the town and would have killed hundreds more people. Telephone operators made calls to all the hospitals, undertakers, and anyone that might help the Lansing Fire Department ended up sending three of their guys with a chemical truck. Um, the drugstore owners, Dr. J.A. Crum and his wife, who was also a nurse, had served in World War I and, as medical personnel and opened their store to, as a triage for the victims. 
the American Red Cross also set up at the store as a comfort for the victims, and the Lansing Red Cross stayed open until 11.30 that night to answer phone calls to update the list of the dead and injured, and also to help provide funeral service information planning. Um, they also had set up donations for the medical expenses and burial costs, and actually managed to raise $5,284.15, including $2,500 from the Clinton County Board of Supervisors and $2,000 from the Michigan Legislature. There was no official recurrence prevention measures taken, but Pyridol was officially taken off the market after that. You know, you'd think that they would have done that earlier. I mean, who would be... <laughs> who would be suspicious of all those explosives and that it could possibly one day be used in an attack by a mass murderer, right? <laughs> anyway, dozens of people drove through the town after either to have a good old-fashioned stop and gawk or to genuinely help. The people in town, however, were not very happy with the visits regardless. The KKK at one point even decided to put in their two cents, which who the fuck in their right mind would want to hear anything that comes out of those disgusting assholes' mouths, but I digress. They said that they thought Andrew did what he did because he was a Roman Catholic and was protesting Protestant and godless schools. Again, like they have any fucking room to speak on religion or gods of any kind. After all this, the town tried to put this tragedy behind them while still remembering the lives of the people lost that day. In 1928, a local artist named Carlton W. Angel donated a statue called Girl with a Kitten with an inscription that is dedicated to the courage and determination of the people of Bath. It now stands in the museum dedicated to the tragedy, which is located in the Bath Middle School. The statue was financed by penny donations made by students of Michigan State. It is rumored to have been created by the melted-down penny donations, which, if that's true, I think is actually pretty cool that they did that. The town tried to rebuild a new school in place of the old one, but it didn't last that long and was later torn down itself, mostly due to them actually losing a lot of money by trying to rebuild it in the first place. The site is now a memorial park with a piece of the original roof tower, so like one of the one of the towers um, actually is sitting there surrounded by a fence and it has a bronze plaque listing all the names of the people that died. And in respect and memory of those that lost their lives, I included in this episode the list of names so that they are never forgotten. Among the adults were 52-year-old Nellie Kehoe, 30-year-old teacher Blanche Hart, 21-year-old teacher Hazel Weatherby, 33-year-old Superintendent Emery Hewick, 33-year-old postmaster Glenn Smith, and 74-year-old retired farmer Nelson McFerrin. And among the children were Arnold Barry, 8, Henry Bergen, 14, Emily Bromont, 11, Robert Bromont, 12, Floyd Burnett, 
12, Russell Chapman, 8, Robert Cochran, 8, Ralph Cushman, 7, Earl Ewing, 11, Catherine Foote, 10, Marjorie Fritz, 9, Carlisle Geisenhover, 9, George Hall Jr., 8, Willa Hall, 11, Iola Hart, 12, Percy Hart, 11, Vivian Hart, 8, Galen Hart, 12, Lavare Hart, 9, Stanley Hart, 12, Francis Hopner, 13, Cecil Hunter, 13, Doris Johns, 8, Thelma MacDonald, 8, Clarence McFerrin, 13, Emerson Medkoff, 8, Emma Nichols, 13, Richard Richardson, 12, Elsie Robb, 12, Pauline Schertz, 10, Elizabeth Witchell, 10, Lucille Witchell, 9, George Zimmerman, 10, Lloyd Zimmerman, 12, Cleo Clayton, 8, and Beatrice Gibbs, 10. My heart still goes out to all those families. I don't know who's around now, but I really feel for them. And I'm really sorry for their loss because that is terrible. Like, those kids were so young and they deserve to have a shot at life. So, yeah, I'm just, like I said, I read the names so they're never forgotten because that's, that's a terrible tragedy that I hope, I pray that never ever happens again in the history while I'm living anyway. I don't want to hear about that. Both fortunately and unfortunately, many years later, nothing of this magnitude had ever been noted nor reported regarding a deadly event at school until April 20th, 1999 at Columbine. Due to this, at the time, survivors of the Bass School tragedy stepped forward to speak up on their experiences with one actually even having words of encouragement for the survivors of the Columbine shooting. One of the surviving teachers, Bernie Sterling, the one who asked Andrew for the picnic on his farm, recalled what it felt like for her during the incident. She said, it seemed as though the floor went up several feet. After the first shock, I thought for a moment I was blind. When it came, the air seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children are tossed high in the air. Some were catapulted out of the building. Adabel McGonagall, who was 11 at the time, told reporters, I don't remember hearing any noise, but I remember flying in the air and seeing things flying in between me and the sun, but I don't remember falling. Her ear was almost completely torn off, but she survived. And Josephine Vale, sorry, who was 13 at the time, said, The loud explosion and kids hollering, you never forget. She was injured by shrapnel in her leg and survived, but her seven-year-old brother Ralph did not. She had been excused from her classes, but went with Ralph to school so he wouldn't be lonely. She was sitting outside the classroom that day because her little brother was afraid of being picked on for having her there. She says that this time of year, near the anniversary, always bothers her, 
and she, along with many of the survivors, find it too painful to speak publicly about it. She says she doesn't like to go down to the site, and um, but in light of the Colorado shooting, she felt the need to say something to the families and survivors among the victims, which was, you gotta just have faith, you gotta be strong and go on and take care of other people. Now, at this point, I don't know if you're actually wondering what the hell happened to Andrew. I know most of you probably don't care, but <laughs> obviously, as stated before, he's roll dead. Like, you don't stand that close to a bomb and not die. His body was eventually recovered by one of his sisters because no one else wanted to touch him. Can't say that I blame them. And without ceremony, buried in an unmarked grave in Mount Rest Cemetery in St. John's, Michigan, thus putting an end to Andrew Kehoe. Again, may he rest in hell. But beyond death, he had one last message to leave. When the police showed up to the burned-down farm in the Bath Township, they found the charred remains of Nellie and the horses, but as they were leaving, noticed something painted on the outlining fence just at the gate. The haunting last words of Andrew Kehoe taunting them, and it read, Criminals are made, not born. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember to check out Glow and follow me on Anchor. Tune in next time when we talk about the Chicago Ripper crew. Laters!